Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? How many of you are still full from Thursday? Uh, we, Wendy and I were talking yesterday in the kitchen, and, and I, I realized that I have eaten a Thanksgiving meal five out of the last seven days, including today. Uh, so we had Sunday was our church lunch, and Tuesday was our faculty lunch, and Thursday was our meal, which we then had leftovers for for the next two days. And now we're going down to Baltimore after service and having Thanksgiving with Wendy's parents. So, and, and we're refusing to bring home leftovers. Um, <laughs> but uh, we, had a, we had a wonderful time. It's been a restful time for our family. Um, but my question for you guys, uh, after the Thanksgiving festivities have ended, how many of you decorate for Christmas? How many of you decorated for Christmas before Thanksgiving? Okay, how many decorate after Thanksgiving? How many of you have a rule that says you will not play Christmas music before Thanksgiving is over? Yeah, we, we do that sometimes. <laughs> but does anybody uh, decorate outside? Who does the decorating outside? Raise your hand if you do the decorating outside. You put up the lights, right? You guys put up lights outside and all that stuff? Okay, uh, so I took our lights out this past Wednesday to hang them because it was just such beautiful weather on Wednesday. Uh, and I discovered that they didn't seem to look like they looked when I put them in the box last year. Uh, they weren't neatly wrapped. They weren't easy to take out. They kind of looked uh, a little bit like this guy here. Um, I don't know if you can see that or not, but uh, just, you know, nice big balls of, of, of lights. Anybody have that problem? Couple of people, all right. And of course, what do you do? Well, you gotta unravel them, right? Or get your son or daughter to unravel them, one or the other. But as we enter this season of Advent, we often find ourselves tangled up in the hustle and the bustle of the holiday season and we bake dozens of cookies and we go to company Christmas parties and school holiday parties and church holiday parties and we do all kinds of things to get ready for this season and sometimes it just kind of gets all tangled up and we get stressed and we find ourselves out at malls and shopping centers wondering who these Christian people are that we're supposed to be now trying to fight for the last whatever it is that's on the shelf so that our child can have it for Christmas. Or you get onto Amazon.com and you try to get in and most of you are saying, yes, that's what we do at Amazon.com, but you're looking for just the right gift for just the right person and just the right size and just the right color and just it just becomes overwhelming. And this Advent, what I want us to do as a congregation is I want us to untangle ourselves from a lot of these things that Christmas has become so that we can focus on the thing that Christmas is. When we think about Advent, when we think about this time of year, we should, as Christians, be thinking first and foremost about Jesus Christ. This season of Advent is a, is a period of time where we prepare our minds, we prepare our hearts, we reflect on the things that Jesus did while he was here, the things that he has done for us. And I think that it's a time that we need to remember and we need to celebrate. And one of the first things that we usually do in churches is we read the Christmas story. Probably every week we'll read uh, from the Christmas story. And we're going to do that this morning a little bit. 
But a lot of times we just hear it. A lot of times we just listen to it and it's expected. It becomes part of that tangle of things. And I have heard people get upset if the Christmas story is not read in church services. It's just that it just gets all tangled up with everything else. So this morning what I want to do is I want, to think, I want us to think about and gain a better understanding of these stories, of these things that the gospel writers wrote about the birth of Jesus Christ. And not just have it be a nice thing that we read every year. So this morning, I want to look at one of the passages, one of the Christmas passages that we always read, and I want to look at the prophecies. I want to look back to the Old Testament and see, well, where was this in God's plan? And as we read through, uh, especially Matthew's account of Jesus' arrival, we see many times where he talks about the prophecies that are being fulfilled or that have been fulfilled. And he says something happened now to fulfill this prophecy in the Old Testament. And he says this over and over again. And we're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. And again, this is one of those passages we're used to hearing. But let's really listen and let's take a look at what we are reading this morning. So Matthew chapter 1 Verses 8 to 23, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, be, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this is the part I want us to pay attention to. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the New Testament telling. This is what Matthew is writing happened when Joseph and Mary got together. But... What he's writing about is a prophecy that was written in Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah 7, God sends the prophet Isaiah to the king of Judah. His name was Ahaz. And Ahaz is what most people would call uh, an evil king in the Bible. We learn elsewhere in the Bible that King Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And in 2 Kings 16, we learn just how bad Ahaz really was. In 2 Kings 16, verses 3 and 4, it says, But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. 
and he made sacrifices and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and, over, and under every green tree. Not a great guy, right? We look at this description of him, especially the burning of his child as a sacrifice to a God that is not our God. And we say, yeah, probably not a good guy, probably not somebody that God wants on his side. But we come back to Isaiah, and in this chapter, we read that Jerusalem was being besieged by the kings of Syria and Israel. See, Israel and Judah had split by then. So Israel was on one side and Judah now was on the other, and they often fought. And Syria and Israel came together to fight for Jerusalem. They wanted to take over the city. They wanted to overthrow the king. And in Isaiah 7-2, we read, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim was Israel, another word for Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And one has to wonder, was Ahaz really just afraid of these two kings? Was he really afraid of just the overthrow of the kingdom? Or was he also afraid because maybe he thought, this is it. This is God punishing me for the way that I've lived and for the way that I've led his people. And I wonder if he wasn't frightened because of that as well. But punishing Ahaz wasn't part of God's plan. See, God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell him and the people to have no fear. He says that these kings are not going to succeed. They're not going to take over Jerusalem. They're not going to overthrow the kingdom. They're not going to kill you. In fact, God goes so far as to tell Ahaz that within 65 years, these kingdoms will be shattered. They will be no more. And this has got to be good news for Ahaz, right? He's not going to die, first of all. And he kind of feels like, well, maybe God is, is not going to punish me after all even though he probably knew that he deserved it. But as we often learn in Scripture, and as we often learn in our own lives, God's plans are not our plans, and God's ways are not our ways, and God has a reason for doing every single thing that he does, even sparing Ahaz and the city of Jerusalem from this destruction. In verses 10 through 25 of Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord speaks through Isaiah to King Ahaz and to the whole kingdom of Judah. And the Lord tells Ahaz that he's going to give him a sign. And actually, he asks Ahaz first, tell me what sign I can give you. And of course, Ahaz has this, you know, come to God moment where he says, no, 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 I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to ask for a sign. I'm not going to do it. And, of course, then God kind of gets upset with him and says, I told you to ask me for a sign. You're making me exhausted. And you can read in that passage where he talks about exhausting the Lord. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read, therefore, the Lord himself will give a sign. You don't want to ask for one? I'm going to give you one. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But hold on a minute. I know a couple of you are, are, are kind of connecting these dots. Wait, wait a minute. 
I thought this prophecy was supposed to be about Jesus. What is this sign that God is going to give to Ahaz? Because let's face it, Ahaz isn't going to live forever, right? Ahaz certainly didn't live to the birth of Jesus Christ. So what does this mean? Matthew says it meant the virgin birth from Mary. Isaiah is saying it means something else. So this is where we need to stop and figure some things out. How many of you have ever watched Sesame Street? Any Sesame Street watchers in here? I was more of an electric company guy, but Sesame Street I watch every once in a while. Anybody know the, the character Grover? Anybody, anybody recognize this guy, Grover? All right. So in, a, in, in one of the classic episodes of, of Sesame Street, Grover comes on and he wants to teach the kids about the concepts of near and far. Anybody remember this one? You've got to look it up if you don't remember this one. On, on, you know, it's, it's on YouTube. You can find it. But Grover, what he does is Grover starts out and he's, he says, I'm going to teach you about near and far. I'm going to teach you about near and far. Right? And he gets really close to the camera and he just sets himself and he says, this is near. And then he turns around and he runs all the way from the camera, all the way back as far as he could go. And he says, this is far. And then he runs back up again. And this is near. And of course, he asks the children if they get it and he, they don't get it for like five times. So he's running back and forth. I'm not going to do that this morning. But Grover teaches this lesson about near and far. And when we talk about biblical prophecy, and we talk about its fulfillment, especially from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we can talk in terms of near and far. The near is known as a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. What partial fulfillment or what near fulfillment basically means is that this prophecy is for whoever is hearing it, and it will come to pass within that hearer's lifetime. They will see the sign. They will see the prophecy be fulfilled. So in the case of Isaiah chapter 7, when Isaiah tells Ahaz that God will prove what he says is true by giving the kingdom the sign of a child being born of a virgin, it means it's, he's going to see it happen. And the kingdom, Judah, is going to see it happen. But the meaning of the prophecy also differs just a little bit in the near term. When God tells Judah that the virgin will conceive, the word for virgin here in the Hebrew is Alma. Alma simply means a young woman of birthing age or a young woman of marriageable age, depending on which person you read. That's all it means. The woman of, that, that is able to have a child. And this young woman would have conceived by natural means. And even though she may have been a virgin at the time of conception, we don't know that. The prophecy doesn't tell us that. It just tells us this young woman is going to conceive, going to bear a son, and people are going to call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And Isaiah doesn't tell us who the child is because God doesn't tell us who the child is. 
But we do know, and we can read in the Old Testament, all the things that happened that God said would happen in this prophecy happened in the lifetime of Ahaz. So there was this near fulfillment of prophecy. There was a woman who bore a child. That child was considered by the people of Judah to be Emmanuel, God with us. Some people think that it was Isaiah's own child. Some people think it was Ahaz's child, Hezekiah. But in any case, both of these men were known by Emmanuel, God with us. And prophecy can also have already occurred, already happened in the near term, in, in the past. In almost every case, this near fulfillment is some sort of physical manifestation of the fulfillment of the prophecy. A baby is born. They call his name Emmanuel. Things that you can see with your eyes, hear with your ears, experience. But that same prophecy can also hold a message that is meant for years in the future where the fulfillment of that prophecy is almost always more on a spiritual level. So when we read in Matthew chapter 1 that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled when the Virgin Mary conceived, we're thinking about that on a much more spiritual level because he tells us she conceived by the Holy Spirit. So yes, there is a physical manifestation, of course, there's a baby. But this is not a purely physical, natural birth. Something supernatural has entered into this. And when we read in Matthew chapter 1, this word uh, virgin, the virgin shall conceive a child, when he's quoting Isaiah, he uses a different word. First of all, it's a word in Greek because that's how he wrote, but the word here for virgin is parthenos. Parthenos means a virgin, not just a woman who can have a child. A woman who has never known a man will conceive and bear a son is what Matthew is writing here in this passage. And in the first century, we, we start looking at this, this whole story of Matthew chapter 1, and we start putting all of these things together, and we can see this spiritual fulfillment of this prophecy. So we read about the betrothal of Mary and Joseph. And we read about all of these things that happened, right? She, she becomes pregnant, and Joseph wants to divorce her and put her away quietly. And the angel comes and says, don't do that. And we know that betrothal, we've talked about this before, betrothal is one of those lengthy processes in the first century. The man and the woman, they enter into a contract which legally marries them, but then they don't live together for a year. So they're living separately. The man doesn't come into contact with the woman. The only time he communicates with her and the only time she communicates with him are through emissaries or messengers. They send messages back and forth, little love letters. But they don't see each other. They don't come into contact with each other. So it would have been impossible for Joseph to be the one who got Mary pregnant. And that's why Joseph wanted to 
divorce. Because obviously Mary has done something that she shouldn't have done, even though she was already married to me. And that's when the supernatural enters into the picture. The angel of the Lord comes. And the angel of the Lord tells him, this child is from the Holy Spirit. It's okay. Raise this child as your own child because he is the son of God. And that is the far fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So we see this near fulfillment. We see this far fulfillment. And we can look at most of the prophecies that Matthew mentions in Scripture, and we can see both a, a near and a far. And if you ever want to do a study on, on prophecy, especially having to do with Advent, with the birth of Jesus Christ, it is fascinating to find all of these things. But for the rest of our time, I don't want to focus on uh, the prophecies. I do want you to encourage you to study them. But I want to think about something that doesn't really get noticed between Isaiah and Matthew. And that is this whole overarching story of Jesus Christ. And we can actually see that if we put these things together. We can see this overarching idea of God sending Jesus Christ to be our Savior. So why did God spare Ahaz? This is one of the questions that I have always asked. Why did God not want Ahaz to die? Why did God not let Jerusalem fall? I mean, this was a bad guy. Why wouldn't God want to punish him? Why wouldn't God want to just get him out of the way? And the answer is that God, if he allowed Jerusalem to be conquered, his plan for saving humanity might have come to an end. You see, Ahaz had another son. He had sacrificed one son, but he had another son. His name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah, arguably one of the most godly kings that Judah ever knew. In 2 Kings 18, verses 5 to 6, it says that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew writes out a genealogy of Jesus. And guess who lands squarely in that genealogy? Hezekiah. Ahaz is there, Hezekiah is there, Hezekiah's children are there. And had God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed, it would have been likely that the king and the king's sons would have been killed. And if the king and the king's sons would have been killed, that breaks the genealogy, that breaks the line. And so God spared Ahaz. God spared the city of Jerusalem. And we could argue that he spared them for the sake of Hezekiah and for the sake of his plan of salvation. See, we think about these things. We start talking about, you know, what, what is God thinking in this particular area? And a lot of times we get confused. I know I do. 
get confused a lot of times when I read through scripture and I read this one thing and this one, it doesn't make any sense. <coughs> if we read scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and we put in to our reading this through line of Jesus Christ, take him from the beginning to the end we can start to connect at least some of the things that happen in the Old Testament with the coming of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And I don't know about you, but that's exciting for me. It's exciting for me to know that on this first week of Advent, when we prepare to uh, celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, that this first week of Advent is all about hope. And Cindy read a little bit about what hope means. And when I can sit down and I can read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and read all the way to the end of, of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I can see Jesus in all of that. That gives me such hope. It gives me hope because God knows not everybody is going to come to him in the same way, through the same means. They're obviously going to come to him through Jesus Christ as they confess their sins. But getting to that point, that's different for everybody. And it gives me hope that as I learn more scripture, as I connect more of these dots, I can make a connection for somebody that they have never considered before. I can make a connection for somebody that might actually set off that alarm that says, yes, I need Jesus Christ. Yes, I need to be reconciled to God the Father. And as we see God's work happening in the kingdom of Judah over 700 years before Jesus' birth in this Isaiah passage, we can consider that hope we can consider that Jesus Christ came to give hope to all people. And when we consider that, when we consider that God promised salvation to Adam even before Adam was created, when we know that God had a plan from the beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God. For the sake of you. For the sake of me. Manifested in these last times so that we can be believers of God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in God. That is what Advent means. That is the focus that we should place on it. God knew from before the creation of the world that he would give his only son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice, to rescue us from eternal death, to bring us into eternal life. My hope for each of us is that we would truly reflect on God the Father 
His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who lives today in everyone who calls Jesus Christ their Lord and Savior. My prayer is that we can untangle ourselves from all the other stuff. And yeah, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff. But can we separate ourselves from that and focus on Jesus Christ? Focus on this hope that God sent to us. Because Christmas isn't about parties, and it's not about trees, and it's not about cookies. But if you want to make cookies and bring them to me, you can. But <laughs> it's not about those things. Christmas is about the hope of Jesus Christ. Let us give this season to God. Let us give ourselves to him in reflection and prayer and praise and thanksgiving because he is the fulfillment of our salvation. And let us be carriers of Jesus Christ's light and let everyone who sees us understand at least a little bit of who God is this Advent season. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for sending your son. We thank you for having this plan before, before you made anything. Father, we thank you for the hope that we see in Jesus Christ. Father, it is our hope that we can live our lives pleasing to you and in a way that shines the light of Christ so that people can see it, so that people can know it, so that through our light, through our witness, you might be able to do a great work in them, work of salvation and sanctification and holiness, just like you've done in us already. Father, we dedicate this season of Advent to you. We let go of all of the trappings of everything that the world says is important. We're going to focus on you. I'm going to focus on being a witness for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the last day, he will remain, and he will give us everlasting life. Share that with everyone you know this week. God bless you.